Thank you. First of all, I, I do want to give a disclaimer. Um, I'm not the Terry Atwood who is the accountant. And some people were expecting that. Um, but Terry and I have known each other ever since I moved to, Hel or to Helena. And um, when I was teaching, he would often get phone calls from parents that would say, Johnny can't get his homework in on time. And Terry would have to say, wrong, Terry Atwood. So anyway, if you were expecting him, I apologize. You have me instead. Um, as Julie said, I, I um, taught school in Clancy for 16 years and retired recently. And now I work at the Jefferson County Museum. When I first moved to Clancy, um, uh, we owned some land in Lump City. And Bob Mark said, well, you live near the famous King Solomon Mine. Well, that got me interested in the history of Clancy mining and um, the fact that Lump City was a ghost town and that Clancy could have been one. And so I started to do research on it. And while I was researching, I happened to find, I was doing a Clancy research. I happened to come across this murder in 1929 in Helena. And um, I'm not going to tell you today the connection between Clancy and the murder. Um, I'm simply going to talk about the murder. Um, just a little bit of a uh, commercial here. <clears throat> I do teach at Helena College, continuing ed, and I have been teaching a class on prohibition, prostitution, and murder. And I do get into some great detail as to um, the trial, that subsequently came about after the murder, and I talk about who I think may have been the suspect. So um, I will tease you with that today that I'm not going to tell you that information, but if you're interested, um, next fall I'll be um, giving that course. So um, I'm not going to be talking too much about prohibition today because the prohibition just set the scene for what was happening in 1929. As you know, um, Prohibition, or the Volstead Act, which was enacted to help enforce Prohibition, was going on during 1929. It'll be another few years when um, it will be repealed, but during this time, we are in the height of Prohibition. And Prohibition was pretty important because that was how they were able to find the prostitutes. Prostitution was legal in Helena in 1929, but if they served booze in the um, brothel, then they would be arrested under the Volstead Act. Now, this picture I wanted to start out with because this is by Bob Morgan, and this is the very famous um, Saturday night, Uptown Saturday night in the 1960s. And um, the building I'm going to be talking about specifically is right here. It's the novelty block. It is no longer here. It was destroyed during um, renovation. but. These two buildings are still here. The one next to it, the windbag, and the Boston block. Um, but how many of you, just for my edification, how many of you lived in Helena during this time? How many of you remember this time? How many of you remember the novelty? Were the rumors about it that it was a place of ill repute? Did you know that, or was that? OK, that's common knowledge. Okay. All right. All right. How'd you come to go into this life? That was uh, most the average John in conversation, I don't know, before or after, would say, would ask a girl that. Hey, so how'd you come into this life? Why would anybody choose to be a prostitute? How come? Well, for the money, honey. Um, prostitution is the world's oldest 
profession. Soiled doves, ladies of e easy virtue, fallen women, sporting women, demimons. They're all sex workers. But those were the various phrases that were used at that time to talk about this part of society that was an evil necessity, but uh, good, respectable people didn't talk about. Now, the pictures I'm going to show are not of Helena prostitutes. Um, so please don't think that I got lucky and was able to find any. First of all, um, it's very, very difficult to find pictures of prostitutes, um, especially from the 1920s. This one, of course, is a very famous one, Josephine Hensley, Chicago Joe. Um, she came here and uh, opened up a business on Wood and Bridge Street. And she was one of the most prominent madams, but I'm not going to talk about the prostitutes from that time. We have a much more knowledgeable person in our audience who can talk about that, Ellen Baumler. So I'm going to skip over that part and go right to the modern day women. The early madams of Helena uh, were called ambitious, assertive, nonconformist, and strong-willed, because it took that to have a successful business. As a man, um, who was ambitious and strong-willed, that was natural. He probably was a good businessman. But for women, they had to be extra something. And madams had to be even extra something more because they um, not only ran a business, but they ran a dangerous business. They had to deal with um, much more uh, things than a businessman who ran a grocery store would have to deal with. They had to deal with women who would be beat up on a regular basis, who would be pregnant and then, of course, out of a job, or who would have a disease. So the, the business women who ran the brothels um, had to be strong, had to have a good business sense, or they wouldn't have made any money. Prior to World War I, prostitution was only a misdemeanor throughout Montana. But after the war, the local authorities wanted to confine the practice to one area. This way, they could separate it from respectable areas, make it a red light district, and everybody knew that's where the girls were. So they moved them to South Maine. And um, this is about that time period we're talking about, the 1920s. And again, we're going to see that there is the, um, the novelty right in there. But this is where they had the women located. It was easy for um, them to be regulated at that point. The police could keep an eye on them. The doctors could take care of them. Um, so they could maintain what was going on because the town fathers knew there wasn't anything they could do to get rid of prostitution, so let's take care of it and let's um, at least regulate it. Um, and in South Maine was a place where there were the restaurants, the Chinese laundry, the bars that during 1929 were not called bars, they were called soft drink <coughs> establishments. So South Maine was the place where uh, if you wanted to do something semi-illegal, that was the place to go. Um, when the ladies moved to this district, the proviso was they could not have their business on the ground floor. Uh, those businesses underneath like the novelty, the windbag, and the Boston block, those were legitimate businesses. Shoe repair, drugstore, soft drink um, establishments. And the women had to confine their business to the second floor apartments. And um, this is the back street to Jackson Street. And this works 
very well because as you know, as you're all familiar with the walking mall, you have to go upstairs to the second floor, but the second floor comes right out straight to Jackson Street. And these were the porches and the doorbells for the men to come in and um, ring the bell and come in through the back door. And um, so the women could sit in their windows and call to the street below, but their, their business had to be off the street level. And there we see this example. Again, this is not Helena, but we see the example of the women up there calling out their wares. I often wondered what sort of advertising these women did, but they didn't need to on South Main because they were right there. South Main was the advertisement. If you were looking for a lady of the evening, that's where you went. You didn't have to try to, to uh, find her in the yellow pages or anything like that. <laughs> the novelty block was built in 1880 by the Auerbach brothers. And um, Next to it, of course, is the St. Louis block and the Boston block, and the second floor is where all the apartments are. This one, you would go up through, oh, sorry. You would go up through the stairs in the center here to the second floor apartment. This was 13 and a half South Main. This was 15 South Main. This was 13 South Main. This was 15. So the apartments were designated as halves. The third floor of the novelty, the third floor of the novelty, as far as I can tell, was not occupied. But for our purposes, this is the place we're going to be talking about today where the murder took place. Now, the novelty is no longer there, but these two cupolas are or were on the kiosk. As you walk down the walking mall, there would be a kiosk on one end and there was a kiosk on the other. These, these two things were at, these cupolas were at the top, but I believe there's only one kiosk now down there. And again, this is uh, the Boston block and what's now the windbag, but again, this would have been where the cribs or the apartments would have been. Um, the windbag, which Dorothy Baker eventually bought and ran, her situation up here on the second floor was a little bit different than the novelty. The novelty had two separate apartments. And this one was run by a madam, so she had several different women. Where the novelty, they were independent contractors. The woman we're going to talk about, she owned 13 and a half um, uh, South Main, and her business partner owned 15 and a half South Main. So they were call girls of a different description from the ones that Dorothy and Pearl Maxwell and Ida Levy ran. All right. You have buzzard glaring at you trying to make a date for what? A picture show and feeling your leg in the dark? Nobody can feel me unless he plunks down plenty. Again, the reason for getting into the business is if we're going to do it anyway, we might as well get paid for it. Uh, in the 1920s, women who did, marry, did not marry right away or at all had very few ways to support themselves. One of the only ways uh, a single woman could support herself was to go into service. And if you look at the censuses in the 1920s, you see a lot of homes would have an additional person who was attached to their household. And she would usually be a servant, a young girl. This was a reputable way of making a living. Um, most mothers encouraged their daughters to go on into service because 
um, this was a good way for them to learn how to run a household, how to cook, how to take care of children. So young girls were encouraged to go into that form of work. But, and they also got a nifty uniform. I mean, that's pretty cool too, that they could get that apron and uh, cap. So you had a choice. You could be a maid, which was a good thing, or you could go to business school and you could become a secretary, a clerk, or a telephone operator. The problem with that was it took money to go to school. So only the very wealthy or the more well-to-do people, women could do that. It was a step up from service work though, for sure. Or you could become a teacher or a nurse. And this was well-paying, solid positions, but again, it required education. So if you had money and you didn't want to get married, you had some options. If you didn't have money, didn't want to get married, you could become a servant. But um, how about if you could find a different way of making a living that didn't, um, uh, that didn't fall under those areas? Now, I'm not saying that every woman should run out and become a lady of the evening just because it pays well, but there are certain type of women that this profession would have fit a lot better than being a, uh, a servant. So, maid made about $3 a week back in the 1920s. A clerk or a secretary or operator made about $6 a week. A teacher, maybe $2,000 a year. A working girl, 25 bucks a night, give or take. So if I'm of that ilk where I've grown up poor, um, my parents were divorced, not that all people that came from broken homes turned into prostitutes, but I had that going for me. And I was already married and divorced and was 21 and uh, had never had anything nice in my life. Maybe if somebody dangled this in front of me, I might say, why not? And that's one of the reasons why women did become prostitutes. In the 20s, you heard a lot about white slavery. Oh, the women are being dragged off the streets and put into white slavery and made prostitutes. That did not happen as much as everybody thought. That was a myth. So when you think about prostitutes and you think about why would a woman do that? For the money. But the working girl didn't have a really great life either. Um, it was simply a job. They had their own culture, their own values, their own class structure, their own social relations. Um, it was a job. You got up in the morning at whatever time and you did your job and you went to bed at night and that was about what life was like. These women were isolated. They were shunned from polite society. They had no friends outside of their colleagues. Uh, they didn't have a family life. If they did have children, they probably didn't see much of them. They obviously didn't live with them there in the brothels. Obviously, addiction to drugs and alcohol was rampant. Um, they were in danger of being robbed and beaten because obviously they had money there in the building or at times even murdered. And they were often depressed and ill-tempered. Um, and though it wasn't illegal, they were still harassed by the police, especially during Prohibition, because again, if you're going to keep a house of prostitution, you want to be able to offer certain services to your customers. And one of them was a glass of whiskey, which was illegal at that time, but 
everybody did it. So if the women were arrested for anything, it was not for prostitution, it was for violating the Volstead Act. And they would pay their fine and they would come back to their business sometimes, and I'll get to that later. So what was life like for the working girl? Well, she started her day late in the afternoon, opened the shades, turned on the lights, letting men know that she was open for business. And business came at all times. She didn't have a regular clock. She couldn't say, all right, I'm working from 10 to 5. She worked whenever they came. Um, no pun intended. Um, <clears throat> men would come to the back door, ring the bell, and be ushered in by either the maids or themselves into the reception room. There was usually a parlor. There they would be served drinks. They could play slot machines because at that time there were slot machines in the, in the buildings. Um, they could listen to the player piano. Um, the working girl would be up until wee hours of the morning and if some of her customers wanted to stay and party all night, that was what they paid for. Usually by 6 a.m. she was in bed sleeping till mid-afternoon and the day started all over again. She had no weekends and no vacations. The novelty St. Louis and the Boston blocks were similar in build. Apartments and rooms were on the second floor. Um, if you can imagine, the rooms would have been wallpapered with ornate, ornate wallpaper on the walls, metal, seal, pressed metal on the ceilings, inexpensive oriental rugs on the wooden floors, spare furniture in the room, just what you needed, and the smell constantly, especially down here. You're going to have that constant smell of the noodle parlor next door. You're going to have cheap perfume, stale air from the cigarettes. Um, the uh, sound of traffic on the street would have been filtered through the windows, and the only light probably would have been single bulbs hanging from the ceiling from the, uh, in the, because there would only be front and back windows. So you wouldn't have a lot of light in there. Um, I believe the, this building did have a sky, <coughs> this building did have a skylight, but the other ones did not. This would be an example, again, it is not from any of the pictures here in Helena, but this would have been an example of what one would have looked like more in the late 1890s, but still you would have had your piano and uh, your wallpaper would have given you an example of what it would have looked like. Um, they did advertise in the local business directories room for rent. And those in the know that would come and say, oh, I would like a room for rent would be, um, they, that, was, that was how they would get into the building. That was the code for, yeah, I'm here to have a room for the night. But if someone genuinely did want a place to live, they would be very nicely told and given directions as to where a legitimate boarding house was. <laughs> so um, that was one, one way that they advertised that they were there. Uh, at this time in 1929, living in the, in the Boston block and the St. Louis block would have been Pearl Maxwell and Ida Levy, and they were two madams. Now, Ida Levy would eventually sell her business to um, Dorothy Baker, who was also known as um, Big Dorothy. And again, most of you probably know the story of Dorothy and Ellen Baumler, again, is much better at that than I am. So anyway, this brings you kind of up to date with what was going on on South Main. Now, the novelty block itself, 
as I said, 13 and 15 South Main were built in 1888 by the Auerbach and Purcell as a store for confectionery novelties and clothing. So that's why it was called the novelty block, because they sold novelties. The two upper stories were apartments, and uh, the building next door, um, well, actually, this is this would be the novelty right here, and then this would be, what, the palace bar that was torn down. This is during um, renovation and Wong's. But, um, and Ellen, you were telling me about one time about the doors between the Boston block. Is do you think that that could be that there were doors like between all three buildings on the second floor? Could be, yeah. So that you could go all three because I, I think those are bigger than windows right there. So anyway, um, and this is what the windbag and the Boston block looked like before it was renovated. The St. Louis block was already built by the time the novelty was built. And uh, so was the, Bo the Boston block was there also. Um, I already told you about that. All right. By 1927, these three stately buildings housed rooms of ill repute. And um, on the level, street level were soft drink parlors and um, a shoe store, I believe, in the novelty. And you can see right here that this is the area where the novelty would have been. And if you go through here and turn around and read this part from the back, it gives you some interesting trivia, historical trivia about that area. And some people say that when they're down in this area, they can still smell the noodle uh, parlor from next door. But I really think what they're smelling is the windbag. But anyway, that is, that's where the novelty would have been right at that point. And um, there's another view of it. And this is, again, in about the 1920s. But you can see that the uh, down below in the businesses below, they had the, the awnings that would come out and protect the people as they were walking through. Over the years, there were various businesses in that area. And again, you can see. Um, the noodle parlor right here, Palace Bar, and Wong's Chinese Food. A narrow stairway, as I said, went up the center, and that's going to play a very important part when I talk about the murder. Um, between This went between, that would go up between the two floors. There'd be staircase that went up to the third floor. And in 1929, the apartments themselves would have brass beds, dressers, basins, washstands. There was a reception room that had a lounge, a davenport, a telephone, a pot-bellied stove, and um, that would have been to the rear, and I'll show you a map in just a second. There's also, this was the murders, murdered woman's room, her partner's room, then there would be a bathroom and a kitchen towards the very back, and then next to this one would have been the parlor that all would have emptied out onto the back street. One of the, um, the novelty was known for its very many different advertising signs on the side. So if you see a picture of Helena and there's a big advertising sign here, that's probably going to be the novelty. The last one, as everybody would remember, was the sign for Coca-Cola. Right there. there it is. The front of the building had a five-bulb street lamp and a mailbox, and there was parallel parking on the street. Help. 
I wasn't able to use my own Macintosh, so I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants here. Can't use that. What do I do? Okay, and now that yeah, yeah. Did it now? There we go. Thank you. Uh, by 1968, the building was unoccupied and in complete disrepair. And in 1972, the rain had washed the foundation. It was crumbling. So those of you that remember the building probably remember it in this state of disrepair. There was an effort during urban renewal to save the building. Um, they offered it for sale for a dollar per square foot or $5,000, um, but no one wanted it. It was, it was in such bad shape. So it was torn down, and today a federal building stands on this spot. And actually, it would have been in this area over here, but that is the, um, the novelty, where the novelty was if you want to go down and stand and look at it. All right, so that gives you a basic background of prostitution and the novelty. Let's get to what we really want to talk about. We want to talk about who was murdered. This woman right here, Margaret Catherine Higart, also known as Bobby Kelly. Why was she called Bobby? I don't know. All I can assume is because at that time they wore their hair bobbed, and I'm assuming that's where she took that nickname. As you know, women who went into the business didn't want to go in with their real name. I wouldn't have wanted everybody to know Terry Atwood was a prostitute down on South Main, so I would have taken a new name, like, I don't have a clue. Red, I guess. I don't know. Um, but Bobby Kelly was her name, and uh, the Kelly came from the fact that she was married. Her husband's name was Gaines Kelly, and even though she was divorced at the time, she went ahead and kept that name. So this is the woman. She's 22 years old. And just a little bit of trivia about this necklace here. When I first started to research her, uh, which has been over 10 years now, I came to the mecca of information, the Montana Historical Society. And I asked Ellen Balmer, I said, what do you know about Bobby Kelly? And she said, well, I know that her sister came to the Historical Society with this necklace to show Dave Walter, because Dave Walter has written a book called The Woman in White. It's in more of the quarries. Probably find it there in the bookstore when you leave. And um, she, the, her sister had come to, her half-sister had come here to show her the necklace, because Dave had written an article that was in the newspaper. And Dave wasn't here. But anyway, Ellen told me that story. And up to that point, I didn't realize that she had a half-sister. So I was able to do research and find her. Her name was, she just passed away within the last two years, but her name was Leatrice Voss. She lived in Polson, and she was probably 25 years younger than Bobby. But um, anyway, so that's how I found out about her. So thank you, Ellen. Bobby was born in Garrison, North Dakota in 1907. The reason I have these pictures again is due to her half-sister who was very kind and shared with me all these pictures and uh, shared with me some information that um, I was able to find other stuff about, so she keyed me onto that. Bobby and her brother grew up very poorly in Melstone, Montana. During, as you know, the Depression wasn't going to start till the 1930s, but in Montana, especially eastern Montana, they had a severe depression earlier than that. And so this is the area that Bobby's family grew up in, Margaret, I'm sorry, Margaret's family grew up in. Her father was a barber, so they did not have a lot of money. 
Her brother talks about how they had to live in a tent and um, they ate a lot of beans. And there's the little Margaret right there in Meltone, Montana. So her life was pretty hard. And again, if I'm going back to the stereotype of what makes a prostitute, having a hard life and wanting things you couldn't have growing up, it's going to be you know, one of those things that we're going to stereotype that uh, she did. In um, 1927, I'm sorry, 1926, 1918, her parents divorced. And in 1918, mom and the two kids moved to Denver. And while um, Margaret was in high school, she met the man she was going to marry in 1926, Gaines Kelly, who was at least 10 years older than her. So she was married in 1926. And they lived in uh, Denver, Spokane, and Casper, Wyoming. Now, when I think about how Bobby got started into this business, Sometimes coincidences aren't coincidences. Sometimes they're more than that. But if you look at those three places, Denver, Casper, and Spokane, in the 1920s, coincidentally, you'll find big red light districts. So could it be that she got into the business while she was married? I don't know. That I've never been able to find out. But as I said, those were three places they lived. Finally, in 1927, Bobby and Gaines divorce, and we find um, her in Helena living as Bobby Kelly. Now, the way she got to Helena was she met a woman by the name of Goldie Morris. And Goldie was the either owner at that time or the manager of the novelty. They met in Thermopolis. Gaines Kelly had tuberculosis, and he was from Virginia to originally, but he moved to Colorado because that's where the TB center was. And um, Thermopolis was a spa where a lot of people with congestion problems went. And there Bobby met Goldie Morris, who was from Helena. Now, they meet again. Coincidence? I don't know. They meet, and then the next year you find Bobby living in Helena and purchasing 13 and a half South Main. This was the man that she was, that benefacted her. His name is Nick, was Nick Jenko. And Nick was a uh, pool hall owner in Townsend. A very, he was Romanian. He had uh, served during World War I, but since he was Romanian, they wouldn't let him go overseas. So he was a drill instructor and a very good one. He was well liked in Townsend. It was well known that he was a guy that would slip a poor farmer 90 bucks. Pay me back whenever, it's okay. He was a real good guy. He'd been arrested several times for violating the Volstead Act, but come to think of it back then, who hadn't? You know, I mean, that was just part and parcel to what was going on. So Nick um, set Bobby up with the money. Now, Goldie and Nick knew each other. Uh, almost everybody in the bootlegging business in Helena, in the area, knew one another. And Nick set her up with the business, gave her the money. It was rumored throughout the years that he was in love with her. And um, whenever she was arrested in the Volstead Act, he would pay her fine. She was not in love with him, but um, we'll get to that a little bit later. So anyway, this is the guy that set her up in business. She, uh, like I said, by 1927, 1928, she's doing a pretty good business. This is her, and on the back side it says, uh, yep, this is me and Peg. No, we're not drunk or nothing. So um, she was a good time gal. And I like this picture because it 
shows an intimacy between Ferdinand, who that is, and Bobby, as you can see there. <coughs> and this is Bobby and Bob. And these are just the, the titles on the back of the pictures. I have no idea who they are. But you can also see that there's the fur coat that she wore in her, in her pictures. So she was a young gal. She's about 21 at this time. She's a young gal who is obviously doing very well for herself. And there she is in front of a vehicle somewhere in the local area. So this is going to bring us to December 1929, but before we get there very quickly, Bobby was very popular in Helena, and she ran with a gang who uh, was the gang that had a lot of problems robbing banks during the summer of 1929. And that story I do go into when I uh, tell the class, but it's also in the book that Dave wrote. And um, needless to say, in um, August, she was involved in a robbery with this gang, went on the lam with them, with two of the gang members and one of the, the guy's wives, and ended up in a cabin in Montana City. And I don't know if any of you have been in Jefferson Hills in Montana City, and you've driven around, and you've seen these beautiful stately homes. And right next to it, this old dilapidated cabin, that's the Flavin cabin. And that's where they ended up. They were on the lam for two weeks. Somebody ratted them out. The police came, arrested them. All the gang members, except one, were in prison by December 2nd. And um, Bobby was arrested in October, in September, spent time in the jail in Anaconda, was tried in October, and then was acquitted and came right back to her business here in Helena. Well, on December 2nd, uh, oh, this is her business partner, Jean Mills, by the way. Jean was 34 years old, quite a few years older than Bobby. She had just come to town in June of 1929 and purchased the apartment next to her, 15 and a half. So on the night of December 2nd, here at the Novelty, um, a murder takes place. Here's the day in uh, chronological order. At 8 a.m., Mabel Stitt, the maid, comes to work. And we had a large African-American establishment here in Helena. And the maids that worked for Bobby were African-American. And that's one of the things about the prostitution business. It did give other people a chance to make a living. At noon, a tall, slim man was seen going into the, into the building from Jackson Street. So she had a customer. At 1 PM, Mabel wasn't feeling well, so she called her friend Dolly Miller to come in and help her do laundry. At 3 p.m., a man purchases a cheap 38 at a South Main second-hand store. 4 p.m., the sun sets. At 5.40 p.m., the two maids leave out the back door onto Jackson Street with the laundry. The doors lock behind them. There's no one in the apartment except for Bobby and Jean. At 6.15, Jean hears a gunshot, grabs her automatic, and runs into the parlor. At 6.30, the maids return pick up the laundry off the back porch, and they don't notice anything amiss. At 7 p.m., two customers ring the bell on Jackson Street, and there's no answer, even though the lights are on. So they go around to the front and try the door. It was locked and still no answer. Now, this is unusual. The front door would not have been unlocked, but it was. So at 8.30, they go to the Montana Hotel. They tell a friend who phones over to the novelty, but there's no answer. So at 10 p.m., they contact the local police, Sergeant Earl Brown and Officer Tony Haynes. They go up the stairs to the front door, knock several times. Finally, a bloodied Jean lets them in, and then they find Bobby's body in her bedroom. 
At 10:10, Chief of Police Spurgeon, Sheriff Clyde Burgess, Coroner Dave Berg, and County Attorney George Cadbury Jr. are called to the scene. At 11:30, Jean finally convinces the police that she needs medical help. When she answered the door, she is bloodied. However, the night before, the police had been called because she had been beaten up by a customer. So when they walked in and saw her bloody, instantly they didn't think anything was wrong. Thought, oh, another night at the novelty, which was unfortunate because um, Jean had been shot. Bobby was face down on the floor by her dresser in bed. She'd been shot in the back of the head point blank with a 38. And according to the coroner, she died instantly. She was dressed in a silk undergarment, silk stockings, and high-heeled shoes. Her dressing gown on the chair. Her expensive watch still on her wrist stopped at 6.15. Now, we discuss this a lot in my class. We talk about where she was positioned. Did she know the person to, who came in? The fact that she was dressed. Um, my suspicion is the fact that she was still dressed in her stockings and heels was it was not a customer that shot her. She was not in the midst of having, performing her business at that time, shall we say. Um, I believe that because of the position of the body, and let's just say that here's the chair and she's standing here reaching down to get her gown, here's the door between the parlor and her room. He walks in, she looks up and says, oh, what are you doing here? I already told you to go away. Turns, she knew him, she knew who it was, turns, he walks in and shoots her in the back of the head. That's what I always felt, that this was somebody she knew. And we, we talk about suspects and have a great big list of it. Again, I'm not going to get into that because, um, well, we only have 20 minutes left and I'm not even at the trial. So, uh, There's no evidence of a struggle in her room and nothing was disturbed. In her dresser was found a large amount of valuable jewelry, her purse, and $30 worth of coins, which was money from a bank robbery. She was the launderer for the bank robbers. They would rob the bank, come to her, she'd write them a check, she'd take the money, put them in, her, in the bank. On the top of her dresser was a $5 bill. That was the amount of money it cost for <coughs> her business. Uh, there was a silver dollar and a small picture of a man tucked in the frame of a larger picture of her on her dresser. The picture of the man in her frame was the man that she was in love with and he was the one um, that caused her and Nick to argue at various times when he would come to visit. Now um, Jean, who was born Jeannie Baker, was known as Jessie Epperson, also Jean Mills, and died as Gladys Johnson. She was there that night in her room. So she hears the shot and picks up her gun and runs into the parlor. So the crime scene. When Sergeant Brown arrived at the scene, he thoroughly searched the apartment in the third floor. The st stairs had not been dusted and there were no footprints. So he was sa satisfied that there was no one hiding on the second or third floor. So there was no one in the building when the maids left. At 6 o'clock, only Bobby and Jean were there. So somewhere between 6 and 6.15, someone came through the front door and locked it. Because the two doors out the back, the one out the kitchen and the one out the parlor, were self-locking. If you went out, it would lock behind you. And if you wanted to go out, you had to flip a, lock, a spring lock in order to go out. So whoever came in knew what they were doing. There were blood stains about shoulder height on the left side of the door jamb coming out of Bobby's room into the parlor. There was a pool of blood in the middle of the parlor with one of Jean's slippers and the shell from a 32 automatic. 
There was a distinct bloody imprint on the, of the left hand, palm, and fingers on the glass of the door inside Bobby's room leading into the hallway, and that door was locked. There were bloody fingerprints on the door to the back porch that indicated that the knob, the spring lock, had been opened with the right hand while a bloody hand turned the knob. Uh, two bullets were found near the hinge of the door between the parlor and the hall. One was four feet from the floor, and another was same height, only 13 inches to the left. And I'll talk about that in just a second. So Jean's story. Finally, she was taken to the hospital. She regained consciousness at about 1.30. This is what she said. A man came out of Bobby's room with a gun in his hand. He came close and shot me twice. I fell down, and I didn't know anything until I heard the pounding of the door. She said at first she encountered two men in the parlor. She described them as one was 45, dark complexion, short and heavy set, wearing a sheepskin coat and boots. The other was taller, 5 feet 7 inches, weighing about 170 pounds, with several days' growth of beard. He also wore a sheepskin coat, a dark slouch hat, a gray work shirt, and overalls. He was about 40 years old. And she said right off the bat, it looked like Nick Jenko, but it wasn't him. And there's Nick again. But he does fit the description. Short, heavy set, dark complexion. Jean was shot four times. The, bullet, the first bullet missed her. That's the one that went into the wall. The second one went through her ear. That was the second one they found in the wall. The third one in her jaw, and the fourth one at close range on her cheek. And we know it was close range because there were powder burns right there. When she learned she may die from her wound, she asked to drop her will. Her estate of almost $20,000 in cash deposits, negotiable bonds, post office certificates, and jewelry was to be left to her 14-year-old son. She wanted the money to be used for his education. He was living in Denver with his mother-in-law, and neither of them knew what Jean did for a living. Now, this woman was a penny pincher. She knew how to pinch a nickel. But $20,000, again, go be a maid for $3 a week. Go do this for 20000 I don't know. Okay, here's where the bullets went in. This, the first bullet went over her head, was missed. It was a wild shot. The second one went through her earlobe right there. The third one in her cheek, crushing her cheekbones, and ended up over here, lodged near her brain. And the fourth one was the close one with the powder burns, and that one, again, was also lodged near her blade. So the sequence, as I'm visioning it, she comes into, and again, here is the door into Bobby's room. Um, I mean, sorry, here's the door into the parlor. Bobby's room is right there. So she comes in. What have you done to Bobby? The killer is standing right there. Something distracts her over here. She turns, which I think is a second shooter. He fires. The adrenaline is, he's high on adrenaline. That shot goes over her ear fires the second one rapidly, goes through her ear, fires the third one, goes in her jaw. Finally, she goes, son of a bitch, goes right, boom, right there, right there, in the, excuse my language, right there in the nose. And so that's how I envisioned what happened to Jean. She did not die. The woman did not die. Now, on December 3rd, she's beginning to think a little bit clearly, and so she's beginning to embellish on her story. I started for Bobby's room after hearing a shot, and I saw him in the doorway between Bobby's room and the parlor. I asked, 
what have you done to Bobby? And he said, nothing. We argued, and I started towards Bobby's room saying, you've done something. He pulled a gun, and I fired at him. I saw him flinch, and I was hit in the ear, and that's the last I know. Now, we do know that, he, that someone was shot. There was blood on the door jamb. He's standing here in the door. There's Bobby's body behind him. There's the parlor jeans over there. He's standing here. There's blood there. Also, her 32 automatic shell is right there in the middle of the floor. So, and the police looked. They could not find a bullet anywhere. So we know that she did shoot someone. Now, here is basically what it looks like. I never have seen the inside of the novelty. So what I'm going here is everything that I've read in the newspaper as to how it looked. So there's Bobby's room. Bobby's body is right about there. Here's Jean's room. She hears the shot. She gets up. She runs down the hallway. These are the stairs to the third floor. She runs down the hallway, comes in. She stands right about here. The killer is right here outside the door. Now, what I don't understand is why it took him so long from shooting Bobby to being right there, but because by the time Jean heard the shot, got her slippers on, and ran down the hall, he should have been, theoretically, according to physics, at this point right here. But for some reason, he lingered. Did he look at the body? Did he feel remorse? Was he upset at what he did? I don't know. But at any point, he was right here when she stepped in. Now, the bullets that I'm talking about were right there. So, yeah, he could have fired that, that shot right there. But I'm thinking that there were two, because Jean said there were two people. Okay, neither here nor there. Okay, so that's where the blood was. Apparently, what happened was when he was shot, he went over here first to go out this door by pushing it with his palm, finding it locked. Then he turned and went through here, opening the spring and going out and leaving that way. And this blood right here is Jean, where she ended up being dropped after she was shot and then somehow managed, and they found the, the bloody footprints, managed to stagger her way back in here into her room, which was where she was when the police came. All right. So the police and the county attorney are thinking that Jean isn't telling the whole truth because she's afraid of Bobby's benefactor, Nick Jenko. So they come up with a little plan, which would be totally illegal today, but we're talking 1929. And so they come up to Jean and they say, um, you know, you told us that, that Nick might have done it. Well, he's in jail. He can't hurt you now. So at that point, she changed her story. I started for Bobby's room after hearing a shot, and I saw him in the doorway between Bobby's room and the parlor. I asked, what have you done to Bobby, USOB? And he said, nothing. We argued, and I started towards Bobby's room saying, you've done something. He pulled a gun, and I fired at him. I saw him flinch, and I was hit in the ear, and that's the last I know. The only man I saw was Nick Jenko. I don't want you to throw him in jail because I don't want any trouble. So now we've got a suspect. So on December 8th, the warrant was made charging Nick Jenko with the murder of Bobby Kelly. Uh, Sheriff Burgess left for Townsend to bring him in. But Nick, who, the, who on December 3rd, when he heard Bobby had been shot, got in a car, drove to Helena, talked to, to Sheriff Burgess, told him he didn't have anything to do with him, told him, yes, he'd been there the day before partying, and the sheriff was fine. He didn't have any evidence to hold him. Let Nick go. So Nick, not thinking any more about the murder, he left for um, Yellowstone on a prearranged hunting trip with friends. So they arrested him in Yellowstone and brought him back. Now, Nick had no bullet wound on him. If he'd have been shot, there was no bullet wound. A dozen Townsend residents identified Nick as their poker partner at his pool hall the evening of December 2nd. He also made a long-distance phone call 
to Helena at 7.05 on December 2nd p.m. and the AT&T telephone operator kept an accurate record and verified his call. Those were not his fingerprints on the door. Now, this time in 1929, there was no forensic ability to do no forensic evidence. There was, fingerprints were just coming about, but there was obviously no database. Um, there was no ballistics done. Gene and Bobby were both shot with the 38, but was it from the same gun? Nobody tested that. Um, uh, nobody dusted the place for fingerprints. Nobody sealed off the crime scene. Every Joe who was downtown went up to the novelty to see Bobby's body. So there was a lot of things that were done that would have been done differently today. So um, the state's case was that Nick in cold blood out of jealousy shot Bobby Kelly in the back of the head. Their witness was going to be Gene Mills and several Helena men who claimed they saw Nick. And the attorney for the state was George Padbury Jr. This is Mr. Padbury Jr. And uh, the defense said that Nick did not kill Bobby Kelly and was not in Helena on December 2nd, and his attorney was Lester Lobel. So I'm, see, I'm almost out of time. So I will just skip ahead and tell you that Nick was tried, but first he was kept in prison, he was kept in jail for 66 days without being arraigned, without being given a chance to be on bail. His attorney, Mr. Padbury, went to California for two months. When he finally came back, um, Lester pressed it and said, you know, you really got to charge this guy or we're going to let him go. So they charged him with murder. Uh, the trial was set for March 14th. Um, of course, it was packed. Everybody wanted to be there to see, you know, this guy that killed the prostitute. And um, Lester Lobel tried very hard to prove that Nick did not do it. He had all these alibis. I think I do have this. Um, See, his closing statement. How would you like to be in this man's place and go through an ordeal of this kind with the word of 12 honorable people against the word of Gene Mills, whose true name is not Gene Mills? Can you picture this man walking out upon the gallows with the mask over his face and being dropped into eternity? If you vote for a verdict of that kind, ask God for forgiveness. For maybe the next day, Gene Mills, with a bullet removed from her brain and her mind clear again, will name the real murderer. So the, whole, the state's whole case was based on Jean Mills' eyewitness, which she had changed several times. She had three bullets in her head, and um, her witness would not be, her testimony would not be disallowed. The judge said, nope, go ahead, let her go. So uh, Lester Lobel felt very satisfied that Nick was acquitted and went back to Townsend and um, didn't live very long. Couple lived in the 1940s. He ran off a bridge and, um, no, he didn't run off a bridge. That's what uh, Lester Lobel said. He died of a heart attack, actually. But anyway, um, quickly, Jean Mills left, went back to Denver to live with her son and mother-in-law, who I'm assuming by this time knew what she did for a living. And uh, we find her several years later taking her own life in the famous uh, um, sandbar prostitution district in Casper. She shot herself with the same 32 automatic that she had. And uh, of course, Bobby is buried at Fort, uh, Forest Vale. And Nick is buried in Townsend. And uh, how did I get the connection with Clancy? Well, give you a little bit of a tease. I think a Clancy guy did it. Tell him to say. Tell him to say. 
Anyway, any questions? I know I rapidly ran through it. I'm, I really apologize. But any questions? Anything I didn't make clear? Anything you'd like to know? So that's the murder. If you go down to uh, that area on December 2nd at 6.15, stand there in front of the windbag and you can hear the gunshots. That's it. That's all I have to say. Thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. And thank you so much for letting me.